We're reading from Hebrews 2, verse 5 to 11. It is not to angels that he was subject the world to come, but which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything in subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, not crown, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Well, it's uh, good to be here. Welcome. It's great to have you along to church today. We, it kind of feels like Hunter Bible Church circa 2009, maybe 2005, something like that. Uh, the number of people we have here today. So I'm imagining there are lots of people online. So hello to you who are online. Uh, we're at the very end of our series called Being Human. Uh, and so we've been looking at this over the past nine weeks. I think this might be week 10. And it's really been a great series. We've been looking at uh, many topics throughout, uh, throughout the weeks. Issues of identity, beginning and end of life and uh, sex and true beauty and having kids and what all this means for who we are as people. What is our identity in? And how should we think about all of these things in relation to the fact that we're made in the image of God and we're redeemed through the death of Jesus and made part of God's family? And what we've seen is that uh, we have dignity, we have worth, we have value, not because of how many kids we have or what job we do or whether we're single or married or tall or short or whether we're being true to ourselves or not, but we actually have dignity and we have value because we're made in the image of God and we are deeply loved by the God, that God who redeems us through the death of His Son. And so it's fitting that we actually end this series this week before Christmas because this week we're looking at what it means for God to be human. That's a massive idea, isn't it? This is what theologians will often call the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, what does that mean? What is the doctrine of the incarnation? Well, it might be something that you've actually already started singing about, right? As you've driven around and put carols on in your car or put up Christmas trees, you might know lyrics like this. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Now what are we seeing about there? Or, or, or you might know the words of, O come all ye faithful, God of God, light of light eternal, talking about Jesus here, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. And so we sing these kind of lyrics and we don't necessarily know what they mean. Though I understand at the moment, if you go to Charlestown or Katara, it's basically a ghost town, there's nobody there. 
Uh, but when we do hear these songs, we don't often kind of stop and contemplate what is the significance of these words. But this is actually the key to Christmas. When God promised that he would be with us, what did it mean? Why is it significant that the eternal God became flesh? I don't know if you uh, watched Backyard Carols last night, but there was this very cute little video, as uh, Jen and Richard were, were alluding to, where the kids were actually dressed up as a bunch of the farm animals. So one of my girls was dressed up as a chicken, another one as a sheep, and, and they all dressed up in these outfits. One, you know, there was one guy who was dressed up as a donkey and so on and so forth. And I think sometimes we can imagine that in God becoming human, it's a little bit like what the kids did in that film. You know, they didn't actually become a donkey, they just wore a donkey suit, right? And we can be tempted to think that about the incarnation. We can think, well, Jesus is just God, he's still God, but he's just wearing a human suit. But the incarnation, God becoming flesh, is more than God just putting on a human suit. Jesus is God with our humanness. He actually takes on our nature, And so when God steps into humanity, he is both at the same time fully God and fully human. It's not just God in a human suit. God is with our flesh and bones and our blood and our nature. And so when we think about little baby Jesus in the manger, that Jesus is somehow at the same time both God and human, creator and creature. God the Son is on humanity and joins us in our game, in our condition, in our struggles. But the question is why? Why would he do that? I don't know about you, but I like to err towards comfort, not pain. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Heaven sounds like a darn sight better than the broken and fallen world we live in here in in Australia or in, in the whole world. So why would God want to do this? Why would, why would the, the eternal God who is perfect and lives without pain in heaven, why would, he, why would he come down the ladder to be with us? Is it just a cool gimmick to kind of set him apart from all of the other religions? Did, did, was he just curious about what it might be like, a little bit like Ariel in The Little Mermaid? She wanted to become a human, right? She didn't want to be a merman anymore. Is God like Ariel, just curious? What is the purpose of the incarnation. Now, obviously, uh, we're not going to be able to cover everything that there is to cover about the incarnation today, but we're just going to look at three things from Hebrews chapter 2. And the first thing we see about God in, in, in being human in Hebrews 2 is that when Jesus took on flesh and took on our humanness and our nature, he actually shows us what it looks like to be the perfect human. He does what Adam right back in the garden, and every single one of us after him have failed to do. So have a look in verse 5 there. It says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus. So, so the author here is quoting a, a psalm, Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a picture of God's ideal for humanity. 
And, and you see the picture of humanity here, right? God has made us rulers of his works. And that's what we've seen all the way through the series. God makes us in his image. He, and part of that is, is we're actually given authority to rule. We're different to the rest of the animal kingdom. We're made in the image of God, made to rule. And so if you look back in Genesis chapter 1, it says, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So Psalm 8 is this wonderful picture of, of Genesis chapter 1. We're made in the image of the invisible God, and he places humanity in a position of authority in his creation. And we see there in verse 8 that, that he's actually left nothing that is out of our control. There is nothing in all of this creation, according to Psalm 8, that is not subject to humanity, which is why we're able to do the miraculous things that we do as humans. It's why we're able to do things like create vaccines and medicine and technology and build skyscrapers and explore the natural world and, and make sure that there's no stone left unturned in our creation, in God's creation, I should say. And yet the more we think about it, the more uncomfortable we start to get with that idea, right? We start thinking, yeah, I can see that, but, but what about global warming? And what about the evil we do through technology? And you know, this week, it kind of feels like the virus might be getting the better of us instead of us ruling over it. And that is the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, he says, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. He's saying, yes, 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 Psalm 8. It's true, it's the ideal for humanity. But our world, our rule of this world is frustrated because of sin. This is not what we see when we look around. And the reason is, is that part of God's judgment on humanity was to actually frustrate our rule of this creation. But have a look at verse 9. There's these beautiful little words there. It says, but we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour. We do see Jesus. In Jesus we see humanity perfected. Jesus is the Psalm 8 man. He's the one that Psalm 8 is actually looking forward to. And Psalm 8 can only be fulfilled when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, actually takes on our humanness, our nature, and comes into this world. And then we see perfect humanity. In Jesus, we see perfect rule, perfect authority, perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus does what Adam and what we could never do. God takes on our humanness in the person of Jesus and shows us what it looks like to be the Psalm 8 person. But this is actually uh, more profound than God stepping into our humanity and being a good example for us, showing us how to do it, if you like, as if he's our coach. When I go to the gym, uh, there's always a coach there at the gym and they try to talk you through a whole bunch of things that you need to do. And so they might perform a technique and they say, well, this is how you do it. 
and they get down and they do a, burp, a burpee or something like that and they do it with perfect technique and perfect form. And then they say, okay, Sam, you can do that. And I do a very sloppy version of what they did. But Jesus came and when he came and perfected humanity, he wasn't just our coach. He doesn't just show us how to do it. It's more than that. It's more beautiful than that. Jesus' perfection means that through him, and this is the second thing, humans can be redeemed. Have a look in verse 9. This is what it goes on to say. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, what is it that causes Jesus to be crowned with glory and honour, to fulfil Psalm 8? Jesus is crowned with glory and honour because he tasted death. And he died not for himself, but for everyone. There's that little word there, for. It says he might taste death for everyone. And it just means on behalf of, or instead of, or in place of. Jesus dies on behalf of everyone. But the question is, why does he have to be human to do that? Why did God have to share in our humanness in order for that to take place? And the author of Hebrews, if you read Hebrews all the way through, he spends a long time talking about this. We don't have time for today. But what I want us to think about is, what happens if Jesus is not God? What happens if he is human, but not the second person of the Trinity? What happens if he's not God the Son? And at least two things happen. The first is justice is not done. So Proverbs 17 says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So you see, if Jesus is a third party, in other words, if Jesus is not God himself, then the cross is a terribly unjust and unethical solution. Craig Hamilton, in his book Made Man, points out that, uh, say I was at Backyard Carols last night, uh, or I had some people over to my house for Backyard Carols, and we're watching the carols, and then one of my friends knocks my brand new TV off, off the wall. Now, at that point, you know, there are two ways forward. I can forgive that person, but say to him, look, I forgive you, man, but you really need to buy me a new TV. Or I can forgive him and then pay for the TV myself. And either way, either by the wrongdoer or by the person who is wronged, and either way is ethical. What is profoundly unjust is if I demand that neither of us replace the TV, but I demand one of my other friends who wasn't even there that evening that they replace it for me. You can't just kind of bring in a third party to bear the price. And so Craig Hamilton makes this point. He says, if there is a sin problem between God and me, and God ropes in an innocent third party named Jesus, who happens to be walking past at the wrong time, even if Jesus is willing, he's still a third party. Which means the whole arrangement remains immoral and unjust. If Jesus is a blameless human but not God then for God to condemn him in my place would be an abomination, according to Proverbs 17. See, Jesus can't just be a third party. 
human. He must be God. He must be the offended party. And so what we see in the Bible is that Jesus is the judge who is actually judged in our place. Isn't that wonderful? That is the wonderful news of the gospel, the wonderful news of Christmas. Jesus is the judge who is judged on my behalf. But a second thing happens. If Jesus is not God the Son, then the sacrifice he makes is not enough. His death is actually insufficient to pay for sin. Do you see what it says there in Hebrews 2, verse 9? It says, Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so in Hebrews 2 here, it claims that his death is on behalf of everyone. So somehow the sacrifice that he makes as, as, as he's on the cross needs to be great enough to deal with not just one person's sin, but the sin of many. And for that to happen, Jesus must be God himself. Even if he's a perfect human, then his death is actually insufficient to pay for the sins of the world. One of, one of, one of the big things that Hebrews has to say is that back in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats that they used to sacrifice for forgiveness of sins, it wasn't enough. It didn't actually do the job of taking away sins. Why? Well, simple. Right? They're not worth enough to pay the price for the sins of the people. It's like trying to go to Woolworths and you know, being charged $150 for your groceries and then saying to them, look, I've got a really great deck of Pokemon cards. It's not a proper price to pay, right? But the other problem with the Old Testament sacrifices is they're not like for like. They're not representative in any way. We actually need a human to step in on our behalf Instead of us, someone who shares our humanness, someone who is like us in every way. And then we have a genuine substitute. See, he can't just be a good human. He can't just be the best of us. He can't even be just a perfect human. We still need the incarnation. We need Jesus to be God the Son. We need Jesus to be God the Son who has stepped into our humanness. If Jesus is only human, then his death is insufficient. Psalm 49 says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. See, the wages of sin is death. And even in the case where there is a perfect person, that perfect person can only step in on behalf of, at best, one other person. My life in place of theirs. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, then his death is appropriate. It's like for like, but it's also sufficient. It's valuable enough to ransom the world because the person of Jesus, his person, is of infinite worth and value. He is the eternal God, God of God, light of light. And the sacrifice of God in the person of Jesus is able to repair the terrible damage that sin has done in our lives. He is able to taste death on your behalf. I hope you see what this means. What we do at Christmas 
is we buy little wooden pieces that we place on our Christmas shelves, on our shelves at, at, at home at Christmas time, and we make these little nativity scenes, right? And a friend of mine recently kind of pointed out to me that those wooden pieces that we buy at the shops to, you know, kind of somehow rep- demonstrate what the nativity scene was all about was were, were usually wildly inaccurate to start with, as most of the characters are all white and sometimes have even red hair in them. But the problem with these nativity scenes is not just that they're westernised, but we actually miss the depth of the Christmas event. The birth of Jesus is intrinsic to our salvation. The joy of Christmas is that God has implemented this ridiculous plan of salvation, right? He sends his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, into our world to share humanity, perfect humanity, and then die on behalf of humanity. And what he did was absolutely necessary for our salvation. Unless Jesus is God the Son taking on our humanness, There's nothing to celebrate at Christmas. But because Jesus is God the Son, he's our appropriate and sufficient sacrifice. Jesus perfects humanity. He redeems humanity. But more than that, he he actually achieves glory for his people. Have a look there in verse 9. Have a look what he says here. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. Now the interesting thing about this verse is is that it's because Jesus suffered death that Jesus himself is now crowned with glory and honour. It's because of his sacrificial death that Jesus is now presently in heaven ruling. It's actually through his sacrificial death that he fulfils Psalm 8 and more. Because of his death, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. The place, the seat, the the place of power and glory and authority and rule. And friends, this is one of the most extraordinary things about this verse. What this is saying is that this very moment, right now, as we're sitting here, a human is sitting on God's throne in heaven. At this very minute, all of heaven... All the angels, the cherubs, the seraphs, they're all bowing down to the human, Jesus Christ. All because Jesus shares our human nature, perfects being human, and then dies the death we deserve. And because of his obedience in death, he's then exalted to glory. But that's not even the best part of this. Jesus not only glorified himself, but then he drags us into glory. So verse 9, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. This is great news. Jesus, God the Son, who shares our humanness, He doesn't keep this glory for himself, but he actually shares it with us. The wonderful thing about Jesus fulfilling Psalm 8 is that he fulfills it on our behalf. He enables us to actually fulfill Psalm 8 too. He he makes us glorious with him. Now, this doesn't mean that we're perfect here as we kind of sit here at church today or maybe online in your lounge rooms. You're probably far less perfect there sitting there in your pyjamas blasting the air con or maybe just sweating in the heat I don't know what you're doing 
But we wrestle, right? We wrestle in a sinful and broken world. But Jesus makes sure that our future is one of glory. Jesus makes sure through his death that we will fulfill Psalm 8 too. By trusting in Jesus one day, one day we will finally fulfill Psalm 8. And all because Jesus fulfilled it here. And we're not just going to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. We're going to rule over heaven itself. We're going to rule alongside Jesus. We're going to be glorious far beyond what Psalm 8 could ever imagine. All because of Jesus. This is all possible because Jesus descended into this world and became... Have a look what it says there in verse 10. It uses the word pioneer. And just means he goes before us. He's the pioneer of our salvation. He goes before us in salvation. He is the perfect psalmist human who goes before us into glory. This is wonderful news. This is the, this is the news that our, our world needs to hear. As we sit right here today, we are about 21 to 22 months into a global pandemic. And we can see that we don't rule. In Newcastle, we've actually been spared from seeing people we know and love suffering at the hands of COVID, but that's finished now. Right? COVID is here on our doorstep, and we don't know what to do, do we? I don't know what to do. We don't know whether to run or hide and, or to embrace it and accept that this is what life is now like. And we get conflicting news from uh, New South Wales Health and the AMA and the, and the federal and state governments are all saying different things and everyone has an opinion, but no one really knows where this thing is actually headed next, right? So while Psalm 8 is true of us in some ways, the last two years have really demonstrated to us that we are not really in control at all. We always think we're in control. But COVID kind of just lifts the veil on that, doesn't it? And it yells at us. You don't rule perfectly. Sure, we've done great things. Sure, we've made vaccines. Sure, we're working on treatments. Sure, we do an enormous amounts of good in our world. But we're not in control. But the great news of Christmas is that Jesus is the Psalm 8 man who takes on our humanness. He dies the death that we deserve and he's gone before us into glory. And when we trust him, when, when we give our lives to him and believe in his sacrificial death, that future is actually ours for keeps. We will go with him into glory. And it would do, do us well to remember the reality of this, this Christmas. I know we're anxious. I know we don't know what to do. But friends, we have enormous amounts of hope because God has stepped into this world to rescue us from the mess we live with every single day. And we don't see it now, but we will see it one day. Can you see how vital the incarnation is? Jesus is, you know, the Christmas story is, what, is much more than a quaint little story that lets us dress up our, 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 our little children within church into, you know, as babies and put them into a manger. Christmas is the most profound event in history. It is the moment when God steps into humanity and shares our humanness as the pioneer of our salvation. 
Maybe you're here or maybe you're watching online and you don't know Jesus yet and you're thinking, or maybe, maybe you've been in and out of Christianity for a little while and you're thinking, oh, I just don't know if church is heaps for me. Maybe I'm going to take a break from church in 2022. Can I urge you to rediscover the mystery of Christmas? Understand how ridiculous yet brilliant God's rescue plan is. And ask God, ask God for help to love him more this Christmas and to know him better this Christmas. Or maybe you've never known about Jesus and you just want to find out a little bit more. If you're online, then you can shoot us a text on the text uh, that will be put up on the screen. Or if you're here today, present with us physically, then you can fill in the Connect card that Richard and Jenny alluded to before. And one of our hosts will point us to that again a little bit later on. But why don't I pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus being human, he shows us how to live this world. But he doesn't just perfect humanity as a model for us, an example for us, but he perfects humanity through his death and his resurrection. He actually redeems us. He brings us into relationship with you again. And he promises us future glory. Father, we thank you so much for this and it is the most profound and bizarre thing that we have ever heard. But what wonderful news, what hope we can have at Christmas this year, knowing that Jesus is the Psalm 8 man. In his name we pray. Amen.